Episode 126 of Keep the Kayfabe. I'm Mike, sitting here with my boys, ready to talk some wrestling. We're getting into the groove of summer. Me, personally, this is the first night that I haven't watched hockey in what feels like two months because there's no game scheduled. So this is, I, I feel like I have an off night. And what better way than to sit down with some of my best friends who know a ton about wrestling and cover one of the legends that will be attending Crusher Fest this June 3rd and 4th. His name is Ted, the Million Dollar Man DiBiase. What a get for them. Uh, he is a Hall of Famer. He's got quite the career. Uh, but before we get into the deep dive into all of his accomplishments and the great things that he has contributed to the business, let's introduce the boys real quick. He's over in Glendale. He keeps it regal. He is Steve Grobschmidt. What up, Grabby? Everybody's got a price. Everybody's going to pay because the million dollar man always gets his way. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right he does. And I love that you put the laugh in at the end because that was just his signature. I could, I could watch that on a loop. And I think you can on YouTube. It's just... <laughs> Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase laughing. So <laughs> it's a thing of beauty, be fun. as we'll discuss. Yep, definitely. Good to see you, Steve. Likewise. All right. Let's cruise down the Bayview. He is freshly squeezed, and his name is Matt Michelson. How are you, Matt? Well, I'm great. And to keep things rolling, <laughs> money, 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 money. <laughs> wow. Very nice. Yeah, really uh, keying in on the theme music. We might have to use that for our outro music tonight. It'd only be appropriate. So how's everything with you, Matt? Good? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to tonight's episode. The Million Dollar Man was always there when I was watching WWF as a small kid. Never really knew a lot about his storylines. I knew he had great hair, and that was pretty much oh, yeah, it. So I'm curious to see what else there is to him. Oh yeah, the hair was great. I mean, he was he was the guy that I always played. You remember that um that arcade game, the WWF mm. arcade game? Yes. He had like yes. Uh, all the greats, but the Million Dollar Man, like he was on there with Virgil and Andre the Giant. They made him look great. He was mm. great. He's he is one of my favorites. I can't wait to talk to him or excuse me. I can't wait to talk about him tonight but also maybe an opportunity to talk to him in person at mm. Crusher Fest. And yeah. then the guy who's lining us up with all the info, who's guiding us on this tour of Ted's career, he's the man with the golden pipes down in Ohio, Gary Williams. Here comes the money, 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 money. Here comes the money, 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 money. <laughs> I mean... I had to I had to keep with the theme. So I did Audible because I was prepared to do the Million Dollar Man. But Steve and Matt, I, 
I gave to you, but then let's go, Sean, Shane McMahon. That's the way to go, baby. So since this is an audio only podcast, our listeners couldn't see this, but I feel like Gary, as you did that, you were reading the lyrics off of a screen. At At least that's what it looked like on zoom. Oh, well, there aren't many lyrics. No, there is not. <laughs> All my notes are here. So, I think you missed yeah. the dollar dollar part, but otherwise you nailed oh, it. Oh, I did. Dollar dollar dollar. That was good. That was very good improvisation. Uh, and that's why you're the cleanup batter on this Keep the Cafe podcast, Gary, for those quick wits and very uh, kind audibles that you lend to the show. So, yeah, boys. Yeah, like I said, Ted DiBiase was one of my favorites. He was one of the guys that, like, sold the best. He was a great heel. He had the great hair. He had a great distinct gimmick. He's a legend. But there's got to be more to him, right, Gary? How did Ted DiBiase get started in wrestling? Well, um, I think, you know, it's important tonight, today, as we talk about Ted, that this now is going to be one of those transitions that we're going to make from the previous conversations. I I felt like, I don't know if you'd all agree, but when we talked about Bob Orton and Greg Valentine, they really had pretty like rocking careers, you know, prior to their WWF run. Now, it's not to say that they didn't have successful WWF runs. But their careers really were rocking. And then, you know, they got into WWF. Ted DiBiase is had a rocking career before and during. Like he he truly is a uh a tr- as he transitioned from the independence and from the territory days, um he made huge impacts in the WWF and is still making them today. I, I, I would shudder to say that of the three that we've talked about, you know, Ted DiBiase still to this day is maybe one of the most recognizable heels um, that the WWF has ever had. Absolutely. I was talking to my dad. I want to say it was a couple of weeks ago telling him about Crusher Fest, as Mike mentioned, coming up this June 3rd and 4th in South Milwaukee. Check it out if you're available and in the area. But talking to my dad, I had mentioned some of the names that were going to be appearing at Crusher Fest. And I mentioned Cowboy Bob Orton, Al Snow, and he kind of knew those names. And then I mentioned Ted DiBiase. And he got so excited just at the idea that we might be in the same area as this guy. Yeah, You know, it's one of those moments where your parents are you're talking to one of your parents on the phone he covers it up he's like hey yells out my mom's name guess who's gonna be at crusher fest matt might talk to him you know i yeah definitely a recognizable name if it transcends generations as well yeah and it's funny you you had that conversation because i visited my dad today and i was telling him about crusher fest and like the possibilities that we're gonna have who we're gonna get to talk to and i listed off every name now he's a lifelong wrestling fan so he Mm -hmm. knew well every name mean gene yeah mean gene but when i said teddy biasi out of all the names he's like oh he kind of lit up and it's like because that's i think that's makes what like he's the big deal like and i Mm -hmm. mean yeah i agree i think he's one of the uh he's certainly one of my all-time favorite heels i mean he was so great i mean i was a uh 
as I've said before, I, even as a kid, I got tired of Hulkamania before a lot of people did. And I started really migrating towards the heels, like Mr. Perfect and the guys that Mm -hmm. would take on, but Ted DiBiase to me, was just like one of the absolute coolest. I love that guy. Yeah. Well, so let's go back for a little bit. Um, Born 1954, he's the biological son of Helen Nevins, who was a pro wrestler. Um, She was married to an entertainer, singer named Ted Willis. Um, They ended up divorcing, and Helen marries Iron Mike DiBiase. And so um, that becomes Ted's um, adopted. He's He's adopted by Iron Mike. And what's interesting is Iron Mike... Uh, has a massive heart attack in the ring and dies. And Ted DiBiase was 15 years old. In fact, in doing some research, um, Harley Race actually ran to the ring to try to give CPR to Iron Mike, um, but they couldn't save him and he died in the ring. Um, Oh my God. So again, now we're going to have another theme that seems to run through this generation of wrestlers, which is... um, he he's on a football scholarship and he starts to go to school. The name, uh, the, the school is now known as, um, as West Texas A&M university. But back in the day there was, it was called West Texas state. And I just want to read off the list of notable wrestling alumni from West Texas state. Terry Funk, Dory (laughs) Funk, Bruiser Brody, Dusty Rhodes, Tito Santana, Tully Blanchard, Manny Fernandez, and Stan Hansen. I heard of them. They, <laughs> you want to talk about a cradle of, of wrestlers legends, my God. and legends that came out of there. Wow. Was, was, did they, were they the first college to offer like a bachelor of arts <laughs> in the performing arts? You, it's crazy. I mean, and, and, it's so it's fascinating is they all kind of i think recruited each other and then like played with each other and then just slowly started to migrate towards each other uh ted dibiase uh ends up with a with a um career ending injury from a football perspective and so then he hooks up with um dory and and terry funk and gets a start in the amarillo territory which is right in all of that area in texas um his debut is in um 1974 so Unlike um, our previous two, um, Ted DiBiase knows that his father's or his stepfather's name is a big name. So he does adopt the name and uses it for his ring name, which instantaneously meant he was a babyface and started his career as a very, very massive babyface. He was in the Amarillo Territory in 74 from 75 to 79, he goes to Mid-South, which at that time is, you're talking the Louisiana, Oklahoma kind of area. Um, and then in 79, he actually goes up and does work for Vince Sr. Um, a, a couple really interesting things during that first WWF run. So he was awarded um, what's called the WWF North American Championship. And there is a story amongst all of this in which um, basically Pat Patterson, very, very soon after in the 1979 area uh, range, 
they have this fictional tournament in, uh, and basically unify the North American championship and the South American championship into the intercontinental championship. No one's for sure if that match actually occurred, but whatever story they told Pat Patterson goes to Rio de Janeiro. And next thing you know, you know, he's the intercontinental champion. Ted DiBiase, I believe is known as the very last North American champion. And then the last um, really important thing that um, DiBiase had done during this period was he was Hulk Hogan's first Madison square garden opponent. And we've talked Hmm. about, you know, um, in, other episodes we've talked about the 1980s and the 1981 and we know the hogan andre hogan started as a heat a mess of heel so imagine this the very first match between dibiase and hogan dibiase was the baby face and hogan mm. was the massive heel not how history remembers those two uh locking up yeah and so i then i think DiBiase then goes into what I would classify as his most formative years of development um, in terms of his wrestling capabilities in the between 1980 and 1987. So he's really concentrated only in so unlike again some of the other guys that we've talked about he he really didn't travel around much. I I mean yeah he still because he was in the NWA. While his base was Mid-South, he was doing some other things. And he has had a lot of connections and wrestling to Japan. But in Mid-South, that is where Ted DiBiase basically creates this heel persona. Um, he was a huge babyface um, in up until 1982. Simultaneously, though, the other major babyface at the time was junkyard dog and junkyard dog oh, yeah. was was humongous i mean you want to talk about it was uh, like the black hulk hogan basically he was. absolutely without uh without a shadow of a doubt mike you're 100 right he was everything to everybody down in the south um and so um there was a booker in mid-south and um well maybe before that so dibiase is you know, getting paired up back and forth. He runs an angle in Georgia championship wrestling with, where he's tag team with JYD against the Freebirds, and the Freebirds um, give Not him bad. four pile drivers, one on the concrete. And, <laughs> you know, he is mortally, I, I just, I, I chuckle when I read that because I think to myself, like how many times do we see a pile driver today? And the guys, not only do they kick out, they may not even go for a cover, but back then, if you were given a pile driver, one, it was barred, right, Steve? It was barred in many, oh, yeah. in many promotions, let alone have four of them happen to you and one on the concrete. Literally, you guys, it's that it there was a quote in this this uh, newsletter I read that people were literally in tears for yeah. fear of what happened to Ted DiBiase. Oh, I'm sure. And the way that guy sold, oh, too, yeah. like, he was good. oh, my God. The oh, king. that's the type of stuff that would make teams like the, the Freebirds just, like, loathed. Oh, yeah, oh. big time. So, so DiBiase then returns to Mid-South. And so here's 
I thought this was a really cool story. So Ernie Ladd is the booker that's helping Bill Watts in this territory. And, and basically he turns to Ted DiBiase and he says, Ted, I know you're, you know, you're going out and about into different territories. You've, you know, doing some stuff in Japan while you're out there. I need you to try to find us another heel because basically they were starting to run out of heel characters for junkyard dog and for some of their storylines so based on the newsletter that I, I read, um, basically DiBiase leaves and then comes right back and says, hey, what about me? And Ernie Ladd's like, oh, I don't know about this. Like you, you know, you've got your dad's, your stepdad's name. You're huge. He's like, basically like, I think I can do this. You trust me. And so what do they do? The rest is history because in a unbelievably classic moment, he turns on JYD, pins him for the North American title, which in the Mid-South region, the North American, NWA North American title was the thing. Mm -hmm. And it was a scientific match. They were shaking hands. They did everything. And he pulls out a black glove and loads it up and whack and basically cheats to win and all hell breaks loose like all hell and he becomes that he goes overnight from being a massive babyface to a massive heel damn now it, it takes a special maestro to be able to pull off uh, mm -hmm. i mean we i think we had whole episodes about that but like um guys that were epically successful in both regards is just i mean it's you can it's a small list which also includes Hulk Hogan. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, something we brought up before that I think, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting for people that's world is sort of WWF either in the eighties or beyond. It's like junkyard dog, Coco beware, the natural butchery, these guys that kind of went on to be notables, but maybe upper mm -hmm. mid card when they were in WWE late in their career, people that, only knew them from that don't realize how massive they were before that um, massive yeah like even coco beware you know he was mm -hmm. a comedy act you know you, one of you guys like brought him up the other day um he was a huge deal like huge. you know main eventer before before he was walking around with a bird and losing on the upper card and, and steve what's interesting is mid-south was one of the territories that really got rated hard but the guys that were in there i mean um Paul Orndorff, uh, Coco Beware, Rock and Roll Express, JYD, uh, DiBiase forms the Rat Pack, which is like the first heel faction. And it's him, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and a guy named Matt Bourne. You um, guys Matt, happen to know who Matt Bourne maybe yeah, do you was know more known for? No clue. Mm -mm. Steve? Doink the Clown. Doink the Clown. The, yeah, which... If you remember that character, he uh, is one of his notable characters. A he was one of my favorites. Yeah. A clown and a lumberjack walk into a bar <laughs> and become professional <laughs> wrestlers, apparently. Yeah. I hear I hear Doink the Clown's getting his own episode on Dark Side of the Ring season four. Coming Honestly, up that would be a great one it because be great. Matt Bourne was kind of a, a tormented soul. And I mean, that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised and I'm also kind of glad they're doing that because that'll be really interesting. Yeah. Definitely. So, so it's in this period of time. Um, they do a couple fun angles. Uh, <laughs> they do the classic um, 
loser leave town match with JYD, and then he returns under a mask by the name of Staggerly. <laughs> <laughs> How you didn't put two and two together? Of course, it was this big, you know, hullabaloo. Um, then they also eventually wore out their welcome with the Rat Pack. And so this is actually really fascinating. So there was a heel manager, very famous from world class and Mid-South, named Skandar Akbar. And basically, he was one of the um, the, the original kind of like uh, anti-American um, heel managers. Um, he ends up calling out it, in this in this process. It, in essence, he starts calling out Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who professes himself to be this ultra American. And then Hacksaw makes a turn from heel to babyface. And then he and DiBiase feud. But it's interesting to know because that's the birth of when Hacksaw Jim Duggan started doing the oh and the, all the big mm. American stuff. There's another guy wow. that most most people that know who he is probably could never imagine him as a heel. Yeah, he right? was a he was a major heel. And then he became this huge baby face in the Mid-South region. Um, but Steve, to your point, the natural Butch Reed is in, in the mix here. Paul Orndorff is in the mix here. Like all those names are names that are very synonymous with the very first major run in the WWF. And DiBiase was kind of a holdout for a little bit. And then eventually um, he he leaves. Um, and the story, um, I watched a gr- really cool uh, in-ring um uh, vid, uh interview it was called for the for the love of wrestling it was a video interview it was him and um and virgil uh, were interviewed it looked like it was over in the uk and he tells some really cool stories that we're going to go over in the next little bit but but basically what ends up happening is right around 1987 he's starting to run you know tag team matches uh with um dr death steve williams and they're battling all these well it's at that time that that rest basically wrestlemania 3 is is occurring and everyone is freaking out and now all heck's kind of starting to break loose and so a couple things are happening simultaneously one is the uwf is now sold to jim crockett and so or i'm sorry mid-south is sold and now is merged with the nwa becoming the uwf which was in essence um the end of the road because they, the NWA, swallowed them up and they never, ever gave that group a chance, which was, in my estimation, a fatal flaw of the NWA because so many guys ended up leaving there to go to New York, of which, so Ted DiBiase is over in Japan, of which he had been very uh, often had gone over. In fact, he was uh, tag team champions in all Japan with Stan Hansen, who has connections to um, with him at West Texas State. Um, and so the story goes, according to the Million Dollar Man, that basically he's over there and he re- he opens a paper and basically he sees WrestleMania 3, 93,000 people and and says to himself, in order for me to be relevant, that's where I need to go. That's where I need to be. And so at the same time, um, Bruce Pritchard is interviewing up in New York for the Brother Love gig. 
Um, Bruce Pritchard had come from Houston, Texas area where DiBiase had wrestled and they had known each other for a long time. DiBiase calls Bruce Pritchard and basically says, Hey, you know, I know they know who I am, but I, you know, what, you know, floated by him. (laughs) And basically Pritchard says, not only are they interested, they're super interested. And then a phone call is made between DiBiase and McMahon. Awesome. It's so interesting hearing how all this came about because to your point, Gary, like he was so successful in all these other promotions Mm -hmm. around WWF and which we'll get into here in a little bit, also successful in WWF. Um, The heel turn, I think is what's most fascinating to me. You talked about that glove, the loaded glove (laughs) being all it took for him to make a heel turn. I mean, I feel like, and I feel like I tied it modern wrestling into these stories a lot like over the last several weeks but here we are again so in AEW this stuff happens all the time and you gotta wonder is it because we've seen it so many times before is it because it's overdone now I I have to believe there was an element of it, it was a special event when it used to happen because it only happened what once or twice in a decade right yeah um well, I mean, I'll think about this, though. Remember, you're talking about 1984, 85, 86, 87. And Mid-South was a regional territory. And so you would you would get it on TV if you lived down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ability for them to run at that type of angle, that and the loser leave town match and all that other stuff. I mean, remember kayfabe was real i mean they they were they cried when ted dibiase had four pile drivers i mean they yeah bought in that's like it. headline news yeah and so mm-hmm. like for them it the realism was so emotional that and and yet you it would happen and you would never know if you were in the carolinas or up in wisconsin like this whole mid-south kind of thing like I literally am like rewatching some of it now on Peacock. It's unbelievably good. But growing up, no, no clue. Steve, I don't know if you, I, I we didn't have any clue about it. We no. kind of knew about Memphis a little bit. We knew about the NWA. Yeah, and you know, we'd class, occasionally go to the but, aforementioned hobby shop and get some magazines, and you'd learn a little bit about other stuff. But mm-hmm. by and large, you're just in the dark on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So just a different different time frame, like yeah, it's just mm-hmm. like the stuff was yeah far more novel then, and now we've seen it all, we read it all, and it, it's it does kind of suck a little bit. Um, if we can take a say, uh, just a, a, an aside, Matt, it does kind of suck because because in a lot of ways those types of really cool suspensions of belief are you know few and far between nowadays because so many things have been done, um, you know you all we 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 are coming off the heels of a, a of another heel turn um a just recent one right in in AEW and you know i mean we all kind of felt it coming and yet you know and yet when it happened i'll even say like i marked out a little bit cuz i was like damn like you kind of knew it was coming but not sure <laughs> um so- Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, does that bring us up to his debut in WWF now? 
Yes. So a couple of really, uh, this was so fascinating for me to listen to behind the scenes. So basically Ted DiBiase gets on the phone with Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon's basically like, I have a gimmick that's never been done before. And I think you can pull it off. And so Ted, uh, this is on the phone. And so Ted DiBiase is like, well, wh- what is it? And Vince is like, I'm not telling you. Because if I tell you and you don't come here and you still have blown it, yeah, it's blown it. And he's like, OK, well, I'll come. And he's like, OK, I'll tell you when you get here. And Ted DiBiase is like, what the hell? Like, What am I going to do? So That's he smart. goes, yeah. So he now is like, um, do I do this? Do I not? So who does he reach back to is Terry Funk. He calls Terry Funk and Terry Funk basically says, if Vince McMahon has an idea that he thinks will make you money, you need to not even worry about it and you (laughs) need to just go. And Uh so Ted DiBiase is like, so I went. So he, so he calls Vince says, I'm coming. So Vince says, I want you to bring your wife. We are going to fly you first class, pick you up in in a limo, and you're staying at this, you know, such and such, one of the most amazing at the time hotels. And he's like, what's going on here? Sure enough, he flies in and McMahon, like, literally rolls out the red carpet in a way that's just beyond. It's just like almost grotesque to him. So he shows up in McMahon's office, and at the same time, parallel, Virgil is on his way uh, to the office. And they both converge on the office at the exact same time. Now, Virgil's name is not Virgil. Um, Virgil was was called Virgil because he was in the Memphis Territory at the time, and he was the, the person they chose, you know, but basically, Virgil is a play on um, Dusty Rhodes. They were making fun of Dusty Rhodes at the time. And his real first name. His real first name is Virgil Runnels. And mm-hmm. Dusty was known as the American Dream. And so DiBiase's finisher became the Million Dollar Dream. And so it was a rib at Dusty Rhodes, like a legit rib. Um, Why? I So... I think, you know, I we could probably go into that for two days too, but basically it was just this kind of like Dusty represented this Booker slash large, larger than life persona figure in the NWA with Ric Flair. And, you know, I just think in a lot of ways they were just poking fun at him because, you know, they could. Um, it was the competition. And it was competition. You know, there was gotcha. a lot of dirty stuff happening at that time. Things from pulling pay-per-views uh there was all kinds of stuff shenanigans going on in 87 and this just happened to be one of them yeah Hmm. interesting so mcmahon introduces the gimmick and basically um long story short uh pat patterson um also is somewhat involved but basically explains to ted so ted dibiase and virgil are there and and Vince says, uh, you, there's nothing worse in life. You know, what's the, what's one of the worst things in life. And that's somebody with a lot of money holding it over your head and just flaunting it all the time. Nothing can grate on you more than that. Mm-hmm. 
And he was like, he's like, yeah, you're right. And Vince is like, that's who you're going to be. And from day one, they talked about all kinds of things. But but what's interesting is they already knew that Virgil was going to be Ted DiBiase's, you know, bodyguard, you know, whatever. They already knew that they and talked in 1987 that um, probably what's, what ends up being what, um, I don't know, 10 years later that they were going to split the two of them up. But they were going to hold that was going to be the culmination of their relationship. They were going to hold it for as long as they could, as long as they were generating heat and stories in other ways. So it was crazy that they were thinking that far ahead at that time. But mm-hmm. basically, yeah, patient storytelling is not a thing yeah, nowadays. It's not a thing nowadays. But nope. basically, everything you saw in those vignettes and all that stuff, that was legit. So Vince McMahon said, you will fly first class. I will, you will always ride in a limo. You will always carry cash with you. In fact, Ted DiBiase said, I would get two, $2,000 in $100 bills from the office. <laughs> and he said, McMahon said, I want you to go to a restaurant. And you are just going to walk in and you're just going to be like, I'm the million dollar man. And all of these bills are on me tonight. And so he would collect all the bills and stack them up, pay for everything, go back to the office, and he would hand in all the receipts. They'd hand him another stack of two, another $2,000 stack, and he would go out and do some more stuff. Man, what a gig. Yeah, no kidding. Talk about living a gimmick. And Pat Patterson was the one who basically he and Ted DiBiase came to the understanding that this actually was the very first iteration of Mr. McMahon, because this is Ah. the person, this is the person that Vince thought he would be if he was wrestling. (laughs) That is, that is something. Yeah. Isn't that something? I wonder if people like came up to Ted who actually needed money and he had to be an asshole to them. You know, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, speaking of our list of questions, um, that would definitely be one I would ask because he did a lot of different things. Um, So he gets introduced on June 27th of 1987, and he even goes back and cites that the those vignettes that it wasn't until Milwaukee, Wisconsin and the famous basketball angle, which I was at. I, Steve, I can't remember if you were with us. I wasn't with you, but my God, I'll never for, to this day ever forget that skit. It's I was one of the all-time greats. I was. It was at the Mecca. I was up in the top center with um, uh, Todd Rybecki and uh, Nick Malinovich, other names from our past. We were up there for three and a half hours watching the whole taping, and that happened. And so basically, what the story behind it is, um, he... He um, they got um, a young um, African-American kid, five years old and his mom, and they got them backstage and then basically were like, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. What's Milwaukee known for? And they said, well, beer and basketball. So he's like, well, I can't do much beer with you. Let's try basketball. And so they scripted this and they got and rehearsed it and then they went out. And 
he's you know supposed to dribble the basketball he does it 10 times then he's supposed to do 15 and right before the 15th he literally kicks the ball away from oh my and god i'm so telling you lace <laughs> i was there and to this day i i vividly recall seeing this uh, i mean the place came unglued just unglued <laughs> i would have gasped it, it was yeah. absolutely and the Absolutely. look on the kid's face is just... He, he had these crocodile tears. Unbelievable. Okay, so... he would have won like $100 or $1,000. $500. If he, $500 if he would have bounced the basketball 15, 15 times, times in a row. And he did it 14 times in a row. And on the 14th one, he kicked the ball away. And then <laughs> super condescending uh, Diviasi super. is like, if you don't do the job right, you don't get paid. <laughs> so... <laughs> so great. It's unbelievable. So the first thing... First thing, DiBiase, because DiBiase in this interview, he is recalling this as if it happened yesterday. First thing he says is he goes back to the back and everyone's going crazy. Like he's like, they're getting high fives. They're like, this worked perfect. You know, the kids with his mom, they get the $500. They're all. And DiBiase's like, you guys don't understand. I'm never making it out of your life. You need to. So they literally had to, you had to leave. Like they had to get him out of there because they were worried that was going to happen. Yeah, but damn. So then he said, "That was the '80s. I mean, that was like, oh, not as common then for that kind of fear." So, you guys, if the story gets even better, he says at some point he's like, "You know, I really wish I had met that kid." Like, I wonder what his name is. Well, he's flies into Omaha, Nebraska, to do a speaking engagement goes to the car rental and the the guy behind there who he says he was looking at his chest says you don't recognize me do you and dbs he's like mm, should i and he's like my name is sean i was the guy with the basketball oh my god oh, and i never heard so that story he met him in real life um, Sean got a basketball scholarship of all things and ended That's up funny. a manager of a car rental place that DBSC just happened to be. Too. And then you can see online, there's like, he signs a real basketball to him and does some stuff, but he's like, he, he just couldn't believe it. And, but that vignette, you guys was like lightning in a bottle and it, you know, it just went from there. It's crazy. Just crazy. It's the most perfect heelish thing anybody could do. It's along yeah. the same lines. So before, I actually didn't know this happened until recently, this whole situation, this vignette. Back in 2015, I was really into NXT at the time. And I, I think you guys were too. And I don't know if you recall, there was a segment with Sasha mm -hmm. Banks. She had a match with Bailey, and Izzy, one of the big super fans of NXT at the time, was in a crowd with a sign Sasha Banks grabs the sign from her, tears it up, and then makes a crying face at her and just makes this little girl cry partway into the match. And at that time, that had not been done in years as a gimmick. And it's something I hadn't seen at the time either. This was sort of, I guess, the very first time anything like this had ever happened. So it made it that much more special. It, it's great even when you see it, Yeah, you know, for the fifth time it's that much it's still just as shocking but when you right. say it for the first time that it's that much more special mm -hmm. quite 
So from nine from that moment in 1987, that angle on superstars of wrestling, he basically becomes the number one heel for the next 10 years. I yeah. mean, he goes bazonkers and he headlines um you know he goes into this you know thing i'm gonna buy the million dollar belt mm-hmm. on then hogan you know he hogan keeps keeps him at bay and so he gets upset and so he says i'm gonna purchase andre the giant andre's gonna get this belt for me and then on february 5th 1988 which i remember seeing live on friday night it was called the main event um DiBiase noted in the interview that I listened to that was the first time uh that rest professional wrestling had been on network TV since the 50s wow live on network TV um but you got I I, I don't remember I should have looked this up but I want to say it was close to 30 million people watched that episode it it was insane like wow. an insane amount of of people tuned in and that was the infamous um referee twin referee of earl and dave hebner and um the fast count and i mean i i was in and it all, ended I hogan's first it, it ended hulk hogan's big first run as the it, wwf champion was, again. i mean that was first loss news and in and of itself yeah and then we, the way they did it we knew we knew there was no there was no heads up there's no dirt sheets. There's no internet. There was no like somebody's in the back. I mean, you guys, when this happened, it was like, OMG, literally. Yeah. I've said it. I think I've said it before on the podcast, but I, I still think that is one of the by far greatest storylines ever in wrestling because it was, I mean, they never did that before. That's the beauty of it. I mean, how did they ever done a twin referee where they were actually twins? I no. mean, it's just it's like perfect. It's so perfect. And with how big Hulk Hogan was at the time. Yeah, exactly. Doing something like that on live TV. And like you said, 30 million viewers. That's 33. I, I just looked it up. Okay. The main event took place at 8 p.m. Eastern. The live broadcast drew a 15.2 Nielsen rating. 33 million viewers that's incredible to give so to give some of our younger listeners perspective at the peak of the attitude era so the late 90s stone cold steve austin is at the peak of his career i think and i'm going off the top of my head but i think the most the highest rating that monday night raw drew in that time frame was about an 8.2 so about 8 million viewers if you think about it this is what five times that unreal Mm -hmm unreal just unreal i mean and it just shows you just showed you the mainstream how red hot they were i mean this is off the heels of wrestlemania 3 this is the big rematch it spurs on then wrestlemania 4 in which ted dibiase um is then um you know he's in the main event basically of the tournament against randy savage Interesting note, um, they actually talked about um, DiBiase winning. Um, he talks about hmm. having this conversation with Pat Patterson, like, and DiBiase, or Pat Patterson basically says to him, like, do you really want to win? And he's kind of like, well, heel heels, 
traditional heels back in the day, the vast majority of them were what were called transitional champions. They were basically there to either, you know, beat somebody so they could get beat or beat someone. So, they're not, you know, and, and basically they just, it, it's not the same, right. As, as a, as a face champion. And so Pat Patterson and he agree that you're right. Like you're better off losing. So why don't you buy a belt? And so that's when he comes up with this idea to create his own championship, which is the million dollar belt. Which ultimately culminated in 2023, the debut of the Triple B, baby. In That's right. I mean, <laughs> un- uncanny. Like, So that was a pretty cool story. He said that um, the million dollar belt is mainly made of cubic zirconium. There are some real diamonds on the back of it. Um, so that if ever asked, he could say, yes, there's real diamonds in here. Um, at the time, it was worth $40,000. Wow. Eh? No, nothing to shake a a stick at, but so, so basically from there, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, he runs some super interesting angles, wrestling tag teams with, you know, uh, Andre, the giant, the mega powers, mega bucks. He wins the King of the ring in 88. Um, He declares himself in 89, the million dollar champ. He buys the Royal Rumble entrance at 30, gets penalized. He introduces a mainstream movie character named Zeus. um, And that they were running an angle, right, Steve, for uh, what was the movie? No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred. Right, right, right. Yep. Childhood Um, classic. He he introduces (laughs) Zeus. Then he gets in a feud with Dusty and Dustin Rhodes. And then he introduces the Undertaker, believe it or not. That's um, right. another great conception yep. too. And then guess the, and then and then Virgil finally turns he turns face, uh, which was planned on day one, and it happens in the in you know nineteen ninety one ish. So almost you know I don't know four or five years later, um, he goes into Money Incorporated with IRS, three time tag team champion. And then finally wins gold in WWE. Finally wins gold legitimately. And then you guys, when he's the manager in the WWF from 94 to 96, in January of 96, who is he famously known for introducing? The ringmaster, better known as Stone Cold Stone Steve Cold Austin. Steve Austin. Boy, he introduced two of the absolute greatest yeah. of the era. Yeah. On the Mount Rushmore, basically. Yeah. So think you think about this for a second. He created a heel persona put over jyd hacksaw jim duggan i mean created helped create them into mega stars he he basically um was the was the 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 heel figure in the most watched wrestling episode likely in our generation he introduced um and and helped andre win his only world championship even if it was only for a moment he andre is still recognized as a world champion dibiase is not but andre is and then think about from zeus to undertaker 
Virgil even to um Hacksaw Jim Duggan, he made him a baby face. The ringmaster. Yeah. Rob Van Dam is known as a young Rob Van Dam in Michigan. Was had it had it had it did an they did this angles where he would have people kiss his feet for a hundred dollars. And Rob Van Dam kissed his feet in Michigan back in oh. 1987. He used to take his boot off and say, I'll give you a hundred dollars if you come kiss my foot. I mean le- <laughs> legitimately. So I, I say all that because I think I just I'm curious your thoughts, but what what an unbelievable career for real. Yeah, there's so many tidbits of information I think you shared tonight that I wasn't even aware of just the number of names, classic moments, different things that he was involved in that mm-hmm. I feel like maybe don't necessarily get overlooked, but when you put them all together into, you know, this nice concise package that we've been presented with here tonight. It really makes you go, wow, this guy is a major influence on pro wrestling history. Major. Steve, what do you, th- I mean, Steve, you loved him as a character. Yeah. You, you and I both, it was funny that you brought what you brought up earlier because you and I were the first um, people to kind of start turning on the good guys because we were yeah. so sick of them. But Steve, you, you, I mean, he, I'm just, I was really floored. I mean, I, I usually send the guys notes. I only had two pages of notes, but I there was so much depth in these notes versus some of the other ones that I was just, I just, am, I'm in awe. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I grew up like the vignettes hooked me because again, like I said earlier, I was like migrated towards the heels and I loved arrogant heels. It's just why William mm-hmm. Regal is a favorite, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, you name it, Rick Martel, Mr. Perfect. These are among my favorites. But anyway, yeah. And, and he was good. And I like, I remember that. I remember that I was one of the 30 million watching that. And I got so excited thinking it that DiBiase <laughs> pulled it off. And like, you know, of course they, they, he doesn't get rewarded the title, but, but, but it's, and yet Andre, you know, his one world title, even if it was for like 10 seconds, whatever it's. Um, yeah. And I mean, we don't even have time to talk about it. And it's not worth talking about, per se, compared to all these other things. But then he goes over to WCW and yeah. like as part of the NWO angle. Yes. I mean, yes. And I can was. still right. picture and I can still picture his debut because, you know, NWO is going strong. Hogan turned all that. And then there's just a random episode of Nitro where they show the crowd and Ted DiBiase is sitting in the crowd <laughs> and everybody's like, why is he here? And he he, he put uh, I'm going to describe this because this isn't a video podcast, but he puts each finger up. He goes one, two, three four and then he repeats four and then the announcers are like well is he part of the horseman you know but he was essentially foreshadowing he's the fourth man in the nwo and he manages his hated foe hulk hogan Mm -hmm. and eventually Mm -hmm. turns babyface. but by that point it was kind of the angle was kind of but still yeah so he was part of the nwo one of the biggest (laughs) storylines of all time yep i mean i i don't know I, i think you know there's a lot of there's so much about you know these some of these wrestlers that are just hidden gems that i mean i i even watched uh just a couple of his matches uh he did this you know with dirty dick slater back in the day and it was when they were in mid-south and just you know mike brought this up earlier but just an amazing worker was not no high spots zero high spots all ground and pound 
you know, holds different things. And then inevitably he would cheat and do something dastardly in the place and just go bazonkers. Uh, and, you know, he just, he was such a great worker, great worker and in sold. Oh goodness. Such yeah. a good, good artist. He had, ama- he had amazing ring awareness he like the ring was like his stage like you said he didn't really do high spots but he was an unbelievable performer probably my favorite is when he gets thrown into the turnbuckle and then he kind of like marches <laughs> out into the middle and then just face plants hard no, it's a classic. Or, or or when he gets clotheslined he keeps his neck really stiff and he like is flat as a board it's almost like a like a like a two by four getting flipped over or like the Highland games when they throw like those huge telephone poles, like sure. stiff like that. I love that. And then, yeah, I just remember as a kid when he got paired up with Erwin R. Scheister, I was fascinated by <laughs> Erwin R. Scheister. I didn't even know what the IRS was. Cause you know, I didn't know anything about taxes, mm-hmm. but a lot of great streamlined uh, thing, money incorporated. Yeah. He's propped up a lot of people. Mm-hmm. He's, he's kind of like, um, He's a glue guy. He's just another one of those glue guys that really have contributed a lot to the business. Analogy. Mm -hmm. And like even today, like you kind of see his influence in MJF's character a little bit too. The arrogance, the riches, the confidence, the I'm better than you. He Mm -hmm. was, he had the I'm better than you and you know it mentality. 30 years before MJF made it before MJF was alive. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, the dude's a trailblazer. Um, We're so thankful that he's coming to Crusher Fest and honoring, uh, you know, the people with his time to tell more stories. I can't wait to maybe get into some of these uh, in-depth questions that we can have that will spring off of this show. But I think before we hit the road here, we should probably play that, vignette of that young man bouncing the basketball here in Milwaukee. Now that we kind of broke it down, we actually had this submitted to the mailbag a long while back. And I was like, well, you kind of have to see it for it to like give the same, um, you know, for it to ring, have some resonance with people. But now that we kind of broke it down and went in depth with it, I think it'd be fun to play it just so you can hear the crowd become unglued as Gary said. So before we hit the road, why don't we play this classic, Vignette from Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man when he screws over a five-year-old boy of $500. Let's take a listen. It looks like a lot of money to most of you people. As I look around the crowd, it's obvious to me that most of you would do just about anything for a little bit of my money. And I'll tell you what, being the generous individual that I am, I'm going to give somebody here the opportunity. Look at that, Virgil. Look at the hands waving already. They all want to shot at the money. I'm going to give somebody here the opportunity to make some of my money. Now, all you got to do to make some of my money tonight is bounce the ball. Now, I know that's real difficult for most of you people because you can't chew gum and walk at the same time. But all you got to do is bounce the ball. Now, who wants to make $500? Look at that, Virgil. Look at the poverty. Let's look around here. Let's see who we're going to pick here. Let me see. Okay. We got us a little basketball player right here. Security. 
Let's bring him up here. Bring him up here right here. Come right on up here, son. Okay. Get around here where I can see you now. What's your name, son? Sean. Okay, Sean. Can you dribble a basketball? You can dribble a basketball, okay. Virgil, give him the basketball. Now let me see, can you dribble that basketball 10 times? Let me see you dribble a basketball 10 times. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Good, oh, okay, pick the ball up, Virgil. Well, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, Sean. If you can dribble this basketball 15 times consecutively without missing, Look at here, I'm gonna give you $500. Now I know you and your family can use $500. I can tell by looking at you that you can use a lot more than 500 bucks. Okay. Virgil, give me the basketball. Okay, Sean, 15 times. Ready, go. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Oops! We didn't get to 15, Sean. You didn't get to 15, did you? No. He didn't make 15. And you know what that means? What that means, Sean, is you've got to learn a hard, cruel fact of life. When you don't do the job right, you don't get paid. <laughs> One of the all-time greatest spots ever, eh, boys? Well, I mean, you know, if you don't do the job right, you don't get paid. And, <laughs> I mean, there's it was a lesson to be learned, a life lesson. And was I that in the say, Mecca? It was. Was that in the Mecca? It was at the Mecca. So, it was at the Mecca. So Austin three sixteen was born in the Mecca as well. Yep. You're right. You're right. Another... There was there was that classic moment. So there's a lot of monumental things that kind of happen in careers. Here in Milwaukee. Well, in Milwaukee, that's when the mega powers broke up here, like Hogan and Macho, yes. and Macho Man. So yes. there's yep. some big things that happened here. And that was when, uh, uh, that was just after the world famous Bradley Center was built. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And they did the backs, the backstage, uh, you got lost in your eyes, you know, that whole thing yep. with them fighting was in the Bradley Center. Yep. Yep. Brings back great memories. I think a lot of this has to do with um, probably just a mentality that we have here in Milwaukee that spurs these great mm -hmm. things, because I know we'll meet a lot mm -hmm. of them at Crusher Fest coming up June 3rd and 4th, where all these legends will be. And I think there's going to be a lot of people walking around doing some of this. Hmm. What's that? I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I've only been on, I've only been on the podcast a couple of times. I just can't, I can't remember what 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 is it. I don't know. I think I'll just point out to him and be like, "Hey, Buzz, are you staying humble, staying hungry, and staying hard?" Oh, uh, Triple H. H. Yeah, woo.